0: Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. As the World Turns was one of the longest-running daytime soap operas in American television history. This daytime soap ran from April 2nd, 1956 to September 17th, 2010, a 54-year run. And now for the next 30 minutes, as the world turns. That's the sounds of my childhood. I can still see my mother coming home After a hard day's work in the dietary department of either the hospital or the school where she stood on her feet all day and cooked, she would sit in her recliner, kick her shoes off from her tired and swollen feet, and watch as the world turns and her other favorite soaps. My grandmother on my dad's side loved to watch the daily soaps as well, only she didn't call them soap operas. She called them stories. And she would say, be quiet while I watch my stories, John Allen. We've been looking at the biblical story of the life of Joseph in this series, Turning Trauma into Triumph. And if you've read his story or are just reading it now for the first time, it sounds like the plot line from a soap opera. An overindulged favorite son but hated brother gets sold into slavery by those very brothers. Who cover up their dark deed for over 22 years? Joseph is sold into the household of the Egyptian commander of armies, a man named Potiphar. Potiphar realizes Joseph is exceptionally honest and hardworking and promotes him to run his entire estate. Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph is exceptionally handsome and well built and sexually pursues him while Joseph runs from her. After repeatedly spurning her advances, Mrs. Potiphar's lust for Joseph quickly turns to anger and then ultimately to revenge, and she falsely accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Joseph is sent to prison, but he didn't go alone. The Lord was with Joseph in prison, we are told. Joseph once again bloomed wherever he was planted, and he made the most of his cell time to the point that he ended up running the prison in which he was unjustly While in prison, he meets two of the king of Egypt's top dietary department heads, the chief wine taster and the chief baker. They both have troubling dreams on the same night. Joseph interprets their dreams correctly, saying one will be released from his cell and one will be released from his life. Joseph pleads with the one who will soon be released to remember him before Pharaoh the king, but we read these sad words at the end of Genesis chapter 40 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 41. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Today, We're going to see the trauma Joseph endured for so long finally begins to turn in a new direction. And it all starts to turn with those four words, Pharaoh had a dream. Heard about a wife on her wedding anniversary who said to her husband at breakfast, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that tonight on our anniversary, I was going to get an expensive diamond necklace. What could be the meaning of that dream? The husband said with a smile, I bet tonight you find out. So that night at a romantic dinner out of the fancy restaurant, the husband slid his exquisitely wrapped gift across the table to his wife. The wife eagerly unwraps the gift and inside was a box and inside the box was a book titled The Meaning of Dreams. We have seen throughout the story of Joseph that dreams play an important role. From Joseph's dreams of ruling over his brothers when he was a teenager to the chief baker and wine taster's dreams that Joseph correctly interpreted and now to Pharaoh's double dream that disturbed him deeply. Let's read about it in Genesis 41. He, Pharaoh, was standing by the Nile when out of the river they came, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up, fell asleep again, had a second dream. Seven heads of grain. Seven, or, uh, seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him." Now, we said a few weeks ago that when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, as we looked at the four unhappy mamas in the home where Joseph grew up. But let me tell you, when King Pharaoh ain't happy, there really ain't nobody happy. And part of why this is such an important detail in the story to understand is that Pharaoh has people to protect him from unfavorable information. You did not want to be the one who brought bad news to the emperor, things don't end well for people who did that most of the time. So one of the main jobs of the people who were closest to Pharaoh is to make sure no troubling news ever gets to him unless he asked for it. And yet we read that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is disturbed because he received a concerning communication direct from the king of the universe. And all the smart people that are on Pharaoh's payroll, see what I did there? pay attention, (laughs) who are supposed to be able to interpret dreams and divine messages can't do it. And if there's one thing tyrants can't tolerate, it's incompetency. Among those who heard Pharaoh's distress about his dreams was the chief cupbearer whose memory was suddenly prompted. Take a look at what this guy says. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, "'Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. "'Pharaoh was once angry with his servants "'and he imprisoned me and the chief baker "'in the house of the captain of the guard.'" Each of us had a dream the same night. Each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position. The other man was impaled. Isn't it amazing what you can remember when it is to your advantage to do so? We can't help but wonder where has this guy been for the last two years while Joseph continued to languish in lockup. Pharaoh, desperate to get an answer to the meaning of his dreams, wasted no time in summoning Joseph. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon when he had shaved and changed his clothes. He came before Pharaoh, and just like it has so many other times throughout this story, Joseph's life is about to change, just like that. Now, before we read any more, try to put yourself in Joseph's place for a moment. You have been brutalized, betrayed, sold, enslaved, framed, forgotten. This is your chance to tell your story. This is the time to finally tell people, and not just any people, but the most powerful people in the world exactly what you have been through. It would be natural for Joseph to be thinking, how can I leverage this situation for my own best interest? But that's not who Joseph is. At least not anymore. Maybe as a precocious teenager, he had grandiose dreams of being in power. But friends, somewhere between the slave auction and the prison sale, he had chosen not to make his misery his mission. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream... You can interpret it. Now picture this setting again. Joseph, 30 years of age, a slave, then prisoner, called into the opulence of the palace and all the power that goes with it and gathered around Pharaoh are the intellectuals, the advisors, who most likely have a condescending spirit and perhaps are secretly hoping that Joseph can't interpret the dream either. Before we look at Joseph's reply, I want you to notice what he did not say. For example, he did not say, Pharaoh, before I interpret your dream, I want to tell you about your boy here, your cupbearer. He's the most forgetful, ungrateful man I've ever met. I helped him out when he hit rock bottom, and that guy forgot about me as soon as he was freed, and I rotted in jail for two more years. And if you're trusting your life to this guy, you're trusting in a bum. That's not what Joseph says. In fact, we're told that Joseph is 30 years old, and later we're told he dies at the age of 110, and yet not once during those 80 years do we hear one word of resentment or revenge cross his lips. Not a word of blame against the brothers who sold him into slavery. Not a word of bitterness against Potiphar's wife who accused him falsely or Potiphar for putting him in prison unjustly. And now no word of rebuke against the cupbearer who had forgotten him selfishly. Joseph was eventually in a position to get even with all of them, but he didn't. More on that next week. Let's return to this striking scene in Pharaoh's palace. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph never promoted himself. He could have. Joseph could have made it all about him in this chance of a lifetime moment, but he didn't. Instead, Joseph repeatedly recognizes God's sovereignty and gives him all the glory. Read on. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. Seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten. And the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered Because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Four times in his answer, Joseph refers to God. God has revealed, God has shown, God has decided, God will do it. Instead of calling attention to himself and making this golden opportunity all about him, he points Pharaoh to Jehovah. It turns out that Joseph's years of testing turned into a courageous, compelling testimony for the God of Israel. We're told earlier that both of Pharaoh's dreams had their setting in the river Nile. This is no insignificant detail. Archaeologist Catherine Bard writes, the Nile was ancient Egypt's most important natural resource. The economy of Egypt was completely dependent on the annual inundation or flooding of the Nile for its rich prosperity. Any breakdown in the regularity of the Nile flooding would reflect on the competence of the Pharaoh on the throne at the time to maintain cosmic order. This is why Pharaoh was troubled and why he would be willing to listen to even a former slave and a current state prisoner to understand what it means. He had to know. Not only his country, but his reputation was on the line. Before we get to Joseph's recommendation, we have to pause and appreciate the theological undercurrents that are going on here to understand the amazing courage Joseph displays in his answer. You see, Pharaoh's business card didn't just say king. It said God. Pharaoh, like most ancient emperors, was worshipped as a god. And here is this Hebrew inmate that just moments before, they had to give a bath. Because he stunk so badly and shave his gnarly beard and put some clothes on him, who's now standing before someone who has on his business card king and God, and yet he has the courage of his convictions to look him in the eye and say, My God, the real ruler of the whole earth, has ordained a future for Egypt and you are helpless to change it. That took some guts. When King Louis XIV of France was in power, he called himself the Great. King Louis the Great. Historians say he had the most ornate and opulent court in Europe. He gave orders for his own funeral. His body was to be put in a gold coffin. The cathedral where the service was held was dimly lit with one special candle on top of the coffin... Thousands waited in silence to hear their revered Roman Catholic bishop, Jean-Baptiste Massillon, speak at his funeral. Bishop Massillon took the candle off Louis' coffin, and he dramatically blew it out. And then he said these words, Only God is great. Now listen, it's one thing to do that when the king is dead and in his coffin. It's something else when the king is standing right in front of you and you just left his dungeon. And yet this Hebrew prisoner looked right in the face of Pharaoh and he said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has just decided the next 14 years of your reign and you better deal with it. But Joseph wasn't finished. He not only gave a winning interpretation, he gave a wise recommendation And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food shall be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of abundance famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. And here, Joseph answered Pharaoh's unspoken request, which is what should be done in light of this prophecy. He suggested that during seven years of prosperity, Pharaoh have a manager to develop a conservation system so that the nation could survive on a rationing plan later. He said that he should plan for what was about to happen by appointing a wise leader over the land to organize a 20% grain tax during the years of plenty, which would be housed in the store cities as a reserve for when the famine came. Joseph had run Potiphar's house and then the king's prison, and he clearly learned a lot about practical economics. And he saw what he learned could be scaled up and he did so. He had been, Joseph had been through the most unconventional residency program ever for running an empire. Verse 33, chapter 41. Now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Personally, other scholars may disagree with this. I have a hard time believing Joseph was insinuating here in any way and I'm the man for the job. I don't think that's what he's doing. Maybe he had hope that if he could make a correct interpretation and a good recommendation, just maybe Pharaoh would release him. I really think that's the best Joseph hoped to get out of this encounter. But God had other plans. The result of Joseph's accurate interpretation was not just release from incarceration, but an elevation to power beyond his wildest dreams. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh was no fool, and he quickly saw, first, he had an administrative genius standing in front of him, and second, that Joseph's plan would be effective not only to secure a steady food supply chain for his own nation, but also the opportunity to enhance and expand his power by putting other nations at his mercy as well. Again, we'll see that next week. No wonder then we read, and the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Now, whatever Pharaoh meant by the word God... We can't be sure about. It may be that he sensed a supernatural dimension to what had just happened. Or it may be that he was picking up on Joseph's multiple reference to God to lend supernatural support to the shocking appointment he was about to make. Now, think about it. He was about to elevate a foreigner, indeed a slave, who'd been accused of rape straight out of prison to become second in command of all of Egypt, and he didn't want anyone questioning it, so he played the God card. Whatever Pharaoh meant when he said he saw the Spirit of God in Joseph. I think Peter explains it best in his little letter to persecuted followers of Jesus when Peter wrote, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might or that he may lift you up in due time. Friends, God lifts up those who leverage opportunities to lift him up. That's what Joseph demonstrated, and that's what Peter later confirmed. God lifts up those who leverage opportunities to lift him up. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise of you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Again, we just have to appreciate this. Joseph woke up that morning a prisoner who stunk, had a gross beard and ratty clothes. He goes to bed that night, the second most powerful person in Egypt. What a difference a day makes. Just before... The 1989 NCAA basketball tournament. Coach Bill Frieder announced that he was leaving the University of Michigan to coach at Arizona State when the season ended. The Michigan athletic director at the time was a man named Bo Schimbeckler, and Bo ordered Frieder to leave immediately and then named an unknown assistant coach named Steve Fisher as interim coach for the upcoming March Madness tournament. Shim Beckler famously announced a Michigan man will coach Michigan, not an Arizona State man. The Wolverines went on to win the whole tournament, and Steve Fisher was officially given the head coaching job. All of a sudden, an unheralded, obscure assistant named Steve Fisher is on top of the coaching world. But Joseph's promotion was more powerful and even quicker than that. He's in prison one day. He's in the palace the next. What a vindication. What an exoneration for Joseph. Those 13 years of slavery and miserable prison conditions had prepared him for this. God had forged him and favored him for this very moment. And now at age 30, he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. Think about that. Back in the Vietnam War era of our country... The phrase was popularized, never trust anyone over 30. Today, given the rapidly growing aging population of our country, we're more likely to hear, never trust anyone under 30. But friends, gray hair is not always a guarantee of wisdom, nor is youth necessarily a sign of immaturity and ignorance. We can be too slow to give up the reins of power to those who are younger. But what we can't see from our limited perspective is what God has been doing on the inside. The old saying goes, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Joseph had been thoroughly tested, he'd been uniquely equipped, and he'd been distinctively called by God for just such a moment as this. And look at the symbols of power and prestige now given to Joseph. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And when he says that, I picture Pharaoh just sweeping with his hand like that and saying, here it is. Your territorial territorial authority is limitless. Verse 42, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. Now, this ring was like Pharaoh's signature. This is the ring he used for sinking the royal emblem into soft clay and stamping invoices, laws, or anything else he wanted to verify or validate with the royal seal. This was kind of like Pharaoh giving Joseph the ultimate platinum American express card with no debt limit. It gave Joseph instant access to all the riches of Egypt. Using this ring, Joseph could make whatever transaction he desired. Joseph was now suddenly... A very rich man. He was given new clothing. Verse 42. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now think about it. Joseph had lost two coats. And now God provides for him a royal garment that he will never lose for the rest of his life. Joseph once had a chain of shackles around his neck in a dungeon. Now he has a gold chain of aristocracy and power. The son of Jacob is now the prince of Egypt. And he looked apart. Verse 45, he had him ride in his chariot, in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way, make way. Joseph gets an entourage. Joseph is now a highly visible celebrity. He carried clout. He couldn't say a word anymore without it becoming known by everyone. You could see people pointing and whispering when he went by. There's a slave who's a prisoner who's now running our country. This is pretty heady stuff. And Joseph was given a new name, an Egyptian name, Zaphonath-Paneah. If it had been me, I would have said, follow the same Pharaoh, just call me Joseph. <laughs> Zaphonath-Paneah, and here's what it means. Revealer of secrets, or God speaks through him. You see, Joseph's name had to have been a little bit tarnished by Potiphar's wife accusation. His character had not been smeared, but his name had. So he's given a new name, one that he did not ask for, by the way, that would symbolize his past is over and the slate is wiped clean. And then Joseph was giving something else he didn't ask for. Verse 45, Pharaoh gave him Asenoth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. This was undoubtedly an arranged marriage between two people of great power, which is still a very common practice in many parts of, of our world today. And isn't it ironic that Joseph's new Egyptian father-in-law, Potiphar, has almost the same name as the man who bought him as a slave all those years ago when he first arrived in Egypt, Potiphar. Potiphar means he whom Ra, the sun god, has given. What an unusual situation that Joseph, an unashamed worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is now related by marriage to a high-ranking, influential pagan priest. We don't know much about Joseph's wife. We don't know what she believed. Jewish tradition says she later converted to become a worshiper of Joseph's God. Well, we're not told that in the text. In any case, even if she was not yet a believer, Joseph did not appear to have any choice in the matter, and there's no criticism of him in the text for having married her. And maybe the lesson we need to learn is that though it is God's stated ideal that a believer should not marry an unbeliever, he in his merciful providence can help people to overcome even in a situation that is far from ideal and that may be none of their own making. With his home base firmly established, Joseph threw himself into the task of administering the nation's agricultural plan that he proposed to Pharaoh. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt during the 7 years of abundance. The land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those 7 years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain. I want you to notice how industrious Joseph was. Notice those action words again. Joseph went out. He traveled. Joseph collected. Joseph stored up. Joseph wasn't just in it for the royal perks. He worked hard during all those seven years of abundance. And then we read later... When there are seven years of famine, he's right there diligently involved again. He's meeting the people who travel from abroad to get grain. He's overseeing the distribution of Egypt's precious food supply that he worked so hard to store up. Joseph was a hands-on administrator. He was no figurehead leader. His promotion was not just a PR stunt. Joseph knew how to delegate, but he also kept in touch with what was going on down line. He wanted to make sure that the job was done right. I love that old story about a Roman Catholic priest who was playing golf with a Baptist preacher. And on the first hole, the Catholic priest had about a 30-foot putt. He crossed himself, putted, ball went right in the cup. Baptist preacher had a 10-foot putt, he missed it. On the second hole, the Catholic priest had a 40-foot putt, crossed himself again, putted, ball went right in the cup. Preacher had a 15-footer, missed it. This went on for every hole, for about the sixth hole. The preacher thought maybe there's something to it. He had about a 15-foot putt. He looked around, didn't think anybody was looking. He crossed himself, he putted, and he missed. uh, The Catholic priest walked by him and said, doesn't help a lick if you can't putt. (laughs) Listen, you can thank God for his goodness to you, and you can pray, but it doesn't help a lick if you don't work, if you don't develop your skills. If you aren't diligent in what God has assigned you to do, Joseph gratefully accepted the position, humbly gave thanks to God, but then he went to work to develop both the processes and the people needed to be successful. And the chapter ends by showing us that regardless of his new Egyptian title, his new Egyptian perks, his new Egyptian garb, and his new Egyptian wife, he remembered the God of his Hebrew youth. And gave him thanks without shame. We see that in verse 51. The writer tells us that just before the years of famine hits, Joseph and his wife have two sons. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and he said, It is because God has made me fruitful. In the land of my suffering. Joseph gave his children names that were reminders of God's activity in his life. God has made me forget. And God has made me fruitful. Every time people ask, what's the name of your children? Joseph can give a testimony to God. The fact that the two sons were given Hebrew names. And subsequently take their place as tribal leaders in Israel. On par with Joseph's brothers. May well be evidence by the way that Asnath, Joseph's wife, had indeed become a believer. And we note that the two names record the two phases of Joseph's life of suffering, the hardship of his father's house and the affliction of Egypt. They were never to be forgotten so long as Egypt or as 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 Israel existed as a nation. I want to close by asking you a simple question. And this sets up next week's final climactic message in this series that I, you do not want to miss. Do not miss next week. Here's the question. Why didn't Joseph ever go back to visit Canaan? He could have very easily. He had all the resources to go wherever he wanted. He controlled his own schedule. So why didn't he just hook up some of those world-class royal horses up to that cool royal chariot he had see if he could track down his family you know what i think here's what i think i think it's because joseph wanted to forget neurologists tell us that all our memories are permanently etched in the creases beneath our cranium our brains do not really forget anything now sometimes we can't recall things but they're stored right here nevertheless Yet Joseph said, God made me forget. And I think Joseph, when he finally got some relief from the multiple traumas that he'd endured over multiple years, he just wanted to forget about it all and move on. And yet, while God didn't want him to live with the pain of the past, he also didn't want him to abandon the dreams he'd given him for his future. Remember Joseph's dreams? That his entire family, including the brothers who savagely brutalized him, callously betrayed him, would one day bow down before him? Has that happened yet? No. But it's about to. You see, listen to me. If you won't go to Canaan, God has a way of bringing Canaan to you. Why? Why? God is not just interested in forgiveness. God wants to bring healing. God cares deeply about reconciliation. Listen to me. Elevation is God's job. Vindication is God's work. And God is very good at what he does. Joseph remarkably sought neither elevation nor vindication. God gave him both. But reconciliation... Is something God won't do without us. And so God sought Joseph because when you won't go to Canaan, God has a way of bringing Canaan to you. Whatever you do, don't miss next week's concluding message. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this. Opportunity to look in your word once again and to learn how things change so quickly, how suddenly a day starts and it ends so very differently. Sometimes that's on, we're on the bad end of that experience. And sometimes it's amazingly good, but you are the God of every day. The mountain and the valley that we just sang a little bit ago. Thank you, Father. And thank you, Father, that you oppose the proud, but you exalt and give grace to the humble. And we see that so real in this story in Joseph's life. Thank you, Father, for it. May that be true of us. Regardless of what Pharaoh meant when he said it, I pray that could be true of us of what other people say about us. Can we find anyone in whom there is the Spirit of God like this one? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.